Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The weekend is almost here, and coincidentally, it's the second Saturday of the month tomorrow. That means there's special programming for children and their families happening at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. Coming up, we'll hear more from the Wadsworth Youth and Community Services Manager. First, do you consider yourself a creative person? As children, we were naturally creative, coloring, singing, moving around the world with curiosity and wonder. But on the way to adulthood, many of us have lost our creative spark. How do we keep it going, especially in the lives of the children around us? Today, where we live, we continue our conversation from Thursday focused on arts and creativity. Coming up, two art teachers will join us to talk about how they encourage their students. But joining me now by Zoom is Dr. Talia Goldstein, Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, Her work focuses on children's developing social and emotional skills. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, So when we think about creativity, can you define it for us? Uh, When We know that there are some people who are geniuses, and then there's the rest of us. And so there's different levels of creativity. Can you walk us through some of them? Absolutely. So creativity, we often think of as what psychologists call big C creativity. So often when you talk about creativity, the first place that people's minds go is Picasso and Frida Kahlo and Mozart, right? These sort of world-changing geniuses who redefined what it means to be an artist or a musician or a scientist. But we actually, in the research world, think about multiple levels of creativity that encompass all sorts of different kinds of activities. So there are actually four levels. Big C is sort of the largest level, but then there's pro-C creativity or professional levels of creativity. And you can think of that as someone like a professional chef who comes up with new recipes on a weekly basis, or somebody who's working as a studio artist, but isn't necessarily changing the world. But then there's also two smaller levels of creativity. The first is little c creativity. And this is really the type of creativity that's accessible to everybody, no matter what your career is. These are things like creating a beautiful invitation for your child's birthday party or uh, painting in your kitchen watercolors on a weekend just because it feels good and it's something fun and pleasurable to do. And then the fourth level of creativity is what we call mini-C creativity. And mini-C creativity involves the kind of creative learning that children do naturally, but that adults also have access to. So these are things like figuring out the ways that blocks can stack on top of each other uh, in new and exciting ways to create a new structure for a house or or for a uh, animal that you're making out of blocks. And even though uh, this may be something that many other people have done many other times, to the child who's creating that structure for the first time, it's a creative act. It's something new for them. It's something that solves a problem that they're working on. And psychologists consider that to be a form of creative thinking. 
You know, I've always thought uh, child development is really fascinating. And when you're a parent, you see it uh, each day. Uh, you can see the way your child's brain is, is developing by uh, the, what they're saying, what they're doing. And when we think about child development, uh, Talia, uh, again, there's a, a focus on building certain motor skills. And that's, I guess, part of creativity. But what else, as we think about the children in our lives, should we be doing to encourage that creativity, those different levels? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think that, as you mentioned at the the beginning, um, children are naturally creative. They want to explore the world. It's really how we learn. Um, if you think about trying to learn something uh, through sitting down and reading about it or being told about it versus trying to learn something by actually getting out into the world, playing with objects, trying out new formulations, um, sort of being more exploratory in your behavior, you're definitely going to learn better by exploring on your own than you are by passively sitting and being told. Uh, and so for children, what works best for them is to get a chance to engage in active exploration of their environment, which means that for adults, what we can do for our children is provide them with the space and the time and the materials to really explore. When children are a little bit bored or when children have to create for themselves, they will keep going out into the environment and they will create new combinations for themselves and try things out that they wouldn't have done otherwise. If everything is really prescribed for them, they don't have that opportunity to make mistakes, to try things and fail, and then to start over and try again and succeed. Uh, what you're describing, is, is that considered pretend play? Well, it really depends. Play has lots of different varieties. So pretend play we think of and define as children using objects in a way that is not purely representational. So for example, if a child has uh, a plastic car that looks like a car and when you move it, it makes sounds like a car. That's a type of play because they're moving that car around, but it's not necessarily pretend play because they're not adding any sort of non-literal representation to it. They're not putting anything on top of it that involves their own imagination. But once that child takes that car and starts to think of it as having wings and flying through the air and then maybe having having a personality and, you know, wanting to go to the special car playground where it'll get to play with all the other cars. That's pretend play because they've started to put their own story on top of it, their own representations that aren't exactly built into the car itself. Uh, you're hearing uh, via Zoom my first guest, Dr. Talia Goldstein, Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University. That's in Fairfax, Virginia, as we explore creativity here on where we live. Um, do you consider yourself a creative person? Uh, was there a moment in your childhood that really fostered your creativity and, and led you to uh, a career that you're in today? Or is it something that uh, you felt that you were never good at? We want to hear from you about why. The number 888 877-888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we think about how children play and use their imaginations, what role should parents have in that? Is it better to let your child uh, sit on their own and uh, you know play and come up with uh, different games? And how, sh how, how much should parents be engaging with their child? 
So I think there's, with everything in parenting, there's a balance that you want to strike as a parent. So children need scaffolding. There are fundamental theories in developmental psychology that one of the primary ways children learn is through what Vygotsky called a zone of proximal development. And this basically means that children have sort of a number of activities or a number of skills um, that they need adults to help them gain. And so parents can help children by playing with them and engaging with materials with them, with blocks, with dolls, with, uh, you know, all sorts of different stories with their child, but then also allowing their child to take the lead and sort of following where they go and helping them along the way. So a little bit of guidance a little bit of following, and then a little bit of letting the child sort of play in the way that they most want to provides that optimal balance of teaching, learning, and exploration. Mm -hmm. And what about the uh, social emotional skills that children uh, need to develop uh, throughout uh, uh, their early childhood? And again, it's uh, developing and learning when they're in school. How do the arts strengthen those skills, Talia? Well, I think that one of the things the arts does is provide a collaborative environment in many different ways. Often, my research is specifically on theater and drama, and particularly in theater and drama, uh, it never happens alone. The actors work as an ensemble or a group. There's a director. There are often musicians, scene designers, um, lighting designers, and everybody has to work together towards a goal. And that goal is either presentation to an audience or understanding uh, a play or another work of art. Um, and the same thing happens with groups of musicians uh, and often even with collaborative visual arts classes. And that sense of ensemble, that sense of working together towards a common goal requires you to engage your communication skills. It requires you to have both the confidence in your own opinions and the ability to listen to other people and take their perspectives under consideration and figure out points of commonality. And so I think that that is that's one way in which the arts foster social skills, but then also particularly for theater and then also for dance and even visual arts and music somewhat, there's an element of practicing the expression of emotions and practicing the embodiment of emotions. And in the same way that rehearsing anything makes you better at it, I really believe that when you practice emotional states and behaviors through trying to portray them, so that other people can understand what you're trying to do, you get better at understanding how emotions work in your everyday lives. And that's a fundamental social skill because if you understand your own emotions, then you can make connections with other people and their emotions and their mental states. Talia, can you talk more about, um, again, this idea of learning how to regulate emotions and being expressive, um, you know, fostering imagination, you know, how that really impacts the way uh, thinking then is developed in the brain where um, someone might be um, more comfortable being creative instead of just coming, uh, coming up with the most standard answer and not really uh, thinking about, uh, you know, trying to connect uh, different ideas uh, and being more creative in their, th their thinking process. Sure. 
So we, I really think about emotion regulation and emotional control as a foundational skill for a lot of other cognitive and social gains. If you think about it this way, so if you are in a situation and you start to have a negative emotional reaction to that situation and you start to feel out of control and you can't regulate your emotions, there's not much else that you're going to be able to do. It's really hard to really do anything, solve math problems, help other people, or be creative if you're overwhelmed by your own emotions. So as children develop social skills, um, Suzanne Denham has a theory of of emotional development called the cascade. And the idea is as children develop the ability to control their own emotions, they will then be able to face outwards more and engage with other people more and engage with um, empathy and helping and altruism and compassion more because they feel in control of themselves uh, so they can orient outward. And all of that is necessary to engage creatively with the world. Because if you're overwhelmed by something that's happening in your life, you can't take the time to sort of organize the way that you think about it or organize what you want to do about it because you're too overwhelmed. And there's actually some lovely research from James Pennybaker and others showing that creative acts, uh, Jennifer Drake is another researcher here, showing that creative acts can actually help you with your emotion regulation and your emotional control because it helps you understand what it is that you're going through. So if you start writing poetry or journaling about an emotional event in your life, after a while you start to understand it in a different way and that helps you control it. So it actually can be used as a tool for creativity once you have sort of a handle on your emotional state. Mm. Uh, it can vary from person to person. And one question that we wanted to explore today, Talia, is what happens to us from the time that we are very imaginative and uh, thinking about things uh, not conforming to eventually uh, we tend to think we're not creative and we um, aren't being as expressive as we were as children. Where does that happen in terms of child development? And what are some things that researchers are pulling out of that in terms of, of things that we can do to, again, foster that creativity as we age? Yeah, I think this is a, a very important question because I do think there's a popular notion that somewhere between the ages of, say, eight years old and 10 years old, that's third grade to fifth grade, as academic requirements really start to ramp up, children start to lose this uh, this tendency and this willingness to go and try out new art forms or try and explore and make the mistakes that come up when you're sort of playing in an exploratory manner rather than playing in a goal-oriented manner. Um, and there's been some work and some controversy around what's called the U-shaped curve, this idea that Early in development, children are very creative, very open, very exploratory, and then it sort of goes underground as the requirements of getting the answer right in an academic context or having, having a secure answer to a particular question become more important. And then the question becomes, do we start to then understand as we head into middle school and high school 
that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be exploratory? Or do we stay in this space where there always has to be a right answer? So I think what teachers and parents can do, and many teachers and parents um, are starting to do, is really allow children to make mistakes, show them why exploration is valuable, and give them the time and the space to try things out on their own without necessarily having to come to one particular secure answer at the end of this exploratory time. My guest today is Dr. Talia Goldstein, Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University. As we talk about uh, fostering creativity in children and in adulthood, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more uh, with uh, art teachers about how they're changing students' lives every day. And, and we want to hear from you. Did you have an art teacher or another adult who inspired you with a quick word or a thoughtful gesture? Maybe a teacher who said one little thing that discouraged you forever. Call in and tell us how uh, these adults have either shaped you or stunted your creativity and how you hope to change that with your children. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're focusing on creativity today. When you think back to your time as a child, what moments encouraged your creativity or perhaps squashed it? We heard from Charmaine Glass-Tripp. In middle school, I had an art teacher named Miss Wright. She was also my first black teacher. She was cool. She had such a free spirit. And that was so different from the women in my family who were amazing and strong and loved me. But... Miss Wright's energy was inspiring in imaginative ways. She made beautiful things, and that made me want to make beautiful things. Now, do you think of yourself as a creative person today? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, my guest via Zoom today, Dr. Talia Goldstein, a developmental psychologist from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And joining me now in studio are two art teachers, uh, Pam Murphy is from the West Hartford Public Schools, the Department Supervisor of Visual Arts. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Terrence Regan, an art teacher at Morley Elementary School, I believe also in West Hartford. Uh, Terrence, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I guess I'll start with Pam. When you heard uh, Charmaine talk about her teacher, Miss Wright, um, tell us a little bit about your response to that anecdote and what you hear from your students. So I think it was really important to hear what the caller had to say. Um, I think Dr. Goldstein, when she talked about providing an environment for students to feel comfortable feeling, uh, risk-taking, being vulnerable, in the words of Brene Brown and her research, um, I think that the caller um, discussing the feeling that she had with Ms. Wright, um, that's about for us, especially in our district, we work hard to create connection with students. Mm -hmm. Trust must be a connection and connecting to find out more about that student so they feel comfortable to share of themselves. Whenever we're creating art, we're weaving in parts of ourselves and for students to feel like they can fail and do that and reveal about their own identity and um, create 
They need to feel comfortable and need to feel trust and they need to feel that connection with mm-hmm. the teacher. And it sounds like the caller certainly did that because a teacher can either discourage you or encourage you. And I think we've all had those experiences in any subject matter, but it sounds like Miss Wright really um, mm-hmm. fostered that relationship. Uh, Terrence, I mentioned you're an art teacher at Morley Elementary School. Uh, tell us what led you to become an art teacher and how you're engaging with your students each day. So I um, started teaching. Uh, this is my third year teaching. I started working at the New Britain Museum of American Art and was working there for quite a while. Um, I had always had a certificate to teach art, um, but I decided to take a you know a slightly different path. And I worked a lot with um you know, general public coming into the museum, working with them in the galleries, talking with kids, talking about their uh, reactions to the artwork and, and exploring a little bit deeper in that um, in that profession. But it wasn't until later that I decided that I was really going to get into becoming an art teacher, diving a little bit deeper into this thing that I was always sort of doing at the museum. So in a teaching setting, um, it was nice to have the time and to not only have the time, but to be responsible for focusing a little bit more on fostering this creativity, mm-hmm. to be working a little bit uh, deeper to, to teach kids to explore, you know, their sort of wonder and explore mm-hmm. their sort of excitement about being creative and and not be so nervous, uh, especially when we start talking about that eight to 10 years old, when kids are really focused on the right answer or that things need to be like this or that, but kind of focusing on that gray middle area and kind of fostering that idea of um, problem solving and making mistakes and taking risks and and how important that is. Uh, And what ages are your students? My students are kindergarten through fifth grade, so they're about five years old, and sometimes four years old uh, through 10 or 11, depending. So when you're um, engaging with them, you're seeing, are you seeing moments where a student thinks, I can't do this or I'm not good enough? And how do you respond? It happens a lot. And especially with that eight to 10 years old, those older children are, are much more susceptible to, to con- being concerned about creating something that is correct. And uh, they're easily frustrated. And you probably start seeing that in third grade. They get really, really frustrated with a project or with a problem that they uh, come across. And it might be because of something that happened in their past. It might be because of something um, that they think that their their peers are, are, are looking at them and they aren't you know, going to be successful with whatever the project is. And so it really is about breaking it down to them. Mm-hmm. you know, And breaking it down to yourself too because it helps you to get to know these children a little bit better these students a little bit better and it helps them from there to be able to break down why they feel nervous about their artwork why they feel like they are stuck or there's this roadblock in front of them and if you can break that down then they can be successful in being creative Uh, Pam Murphy are there some examples through your teaching career when a child was really creative and and what brought that out so I think um, again keeping um, the options open for the students in terms of they know that they can try different things, that their ideas can be validated. They, we can still maintain high standards. They can still learn colored pencil techniques, for example. But wh- where is their voice? And is that voice honored? Do we bring that voice forward? So when we find in our practice, when students um, are invested, when their voice is heard, when the lesson is student-centered and when there's collaborative work involved so often to explore a topic, the student won't feel as threatened if they're discovering with their peers 
and they're discovering about an artist or about concepts or about how to apply different types of media. So when they have ownership, then they can have that confidence to move forward. Then their ideas can be honored within a framework of expectations, of course, but they now have a voice. And so that's where that confidence comes through and that they know, there, as Terrence was saying, there's not one answer to a visual problem. And we foster that and we support them in that way. And when we do that, then they will be um, empowered to continue to create and make that idea um, something that can come to its, its fruition. Mm-hmm. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Uh, Deborah's calling from Watertown. Deborah, you're on the show. Yes. In the 1970s, when I was in high school, I had a bit of a family crisis, and um, I uh, went from A's to F's in one semester, switched from college prep classes to all vocational classes except for one English class. We were studying the transcendental poets, and for some reason, that teacher just captured me. And I handed in as an assignment, not whatever it was that was assigned, but a poem that I had, I had written in that style. And I still remember, my compass twin is here in biding in the courtyard of my mind. He cannot enter, cannot leave, for our two souls, not parallel, are even few, and in this world can never meet. And I I handed it in, like, in 30 copies without any kind of explanation, and the teacher got it. And, I I mean, got it and handed it out to the first session as a a poem to be analyzed. And it was like my reemergence into, hey, she's she's still there. She's still got a mind. Mm. Well, Deborah, thank you unbelievable validation. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that story. Uh, So often uh, to my in-studio guests, Pam and Terrence, when uh, we're thinking about education, especially uh, these days, the uh, emphasis is on making sure that kids are meeting their standards. And and as a country, we're falling behind other nations in terms of knowledge. Uh, And when we think about the benefits of an art education, you know, how it it goes beyond um, just learning a particular uh, way to draw or sculpt, you know, how it impacts uh, people's thinking and um, connections and other subjects. Can you add to that, Pam? Yeah, I think that the process that we're talking about is that creative process where um, you can try new things. You're not afraid to make those mistakes that we keep talking about. And um, that when you're in that creative process, you're making something that wasn't there before. So you need courage to do that. And you need but the environment has to be such that as Deborah spoke about, and the first caller about Miss Wright, they that teacher created an environment where trust was there, connections with students, just like Terrence is saying that he connects with connects with his students, and they feel like they're failing. And I've been right there, and he's masterful at it, of making them understand, you can make that mistake, try something new. Look at something from a different perspective, and there is not a wrong answer there. And so this caller who was needing to find a connection to the world, in a way, connected with this um, English language, language arts teacher to create this poem that was related to part of her life. And so sharing of yourself and when you're creating art, there's always a piece of you there. But the, the environment needs to be there 
that is safe to do that. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Uh, Marina is calling from Norwalk. Marina, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. Yes, I'm really appreciating everything that's been said, and I was just uh, thinking about um, making a mistake and having the right answer. I am um, a parent, and I'm also, I think, a creative person, and I'm really trying to instill that in my children, and I'm seeing this. I have... Um, someone in that age group, 8 to 10, and also a younger one. And, and I want to always say, you know, there is no right answer um, when we are talking about art, and there doesn't have to be a right answer. And um, instilling the value of also making mistakes, um, because it could lead you to either, uh, you know, a discovery, a more interesting answer. Um, and we see that also in other aspects of learning, like in science. There's m- mistakes all over science. If it wasn't for mistakes, so many things wouldn't exist. So I I think it's really important to, um, and also nowadays I I do see art really being applied um, in uh, sort of, you know, different aspects. Uh, It's not just an art class. I'm seeing visual learning uh, with math that's coming home. We We have a teacher who's teaching them, you know, really understanding math by, you know, doing visual understanding. Um, So I'm really finding that it's very important, actually. Well, thank you, Marina, uh, for your call. I wanted to bring back our guest via Zoom, Dr. Talia Goldstein, Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University. Uh, Talia, uh, as we hear from the art teachers and our callers, uh, what do um, uh, researchers know about how arts is strengthening other areas of learning? I, yeah, I think this is a it's a great question, and I'm really appreciating everybody's perspectives on this, and and certainly the perspectives of of teachers who are in the room with the children as they're as they're doing this. I think that the the question of what we call transfer, which is uh, habits of mind and skills that are learned within the arts classroom, transferring to outside the arts classroom has always been a controversial one. People have uh, historically pointed to the arts as being, quote, good for raising test scores and not much else. And the problem with that argument is that it just brings us back around again to um, making the arts secondary to other academic skills. And I think what a lovely thing that's been happening in the last decade or so is this shifting of the conversation to be about what is unique to the arts and what are the habits of mind or the ways of thinking that are within the arts that you can't necessarily find somewhere else? So I've already heard us talking today about um, things such as exploration and reflection, both of which are really important skills across a variety of domains. And this idea of reflecting on the work that you've done, putting it into context and history, seeing how multiple pathways can converge on a similar idea or ideal. I think that um, these are skills that occur in arts classrooms that there isn't necessarily space for or it's not made as explicit in other academic domains. And I think the trick is to make that part of the conversation and to make sure that children 
know and can see that the type of exploration that they're doing in an arts classroom, the type of reflection on performance that they're doing in a dance studio or after a rehearsal can also be applied to other domains of their life, to relationships, to math class, to English class. And I think what the, the caller said about starting to see these kind of artistic perspectives or artistic activities placed in other academic subjects is really great and important and one of the ways that we can see the true inherent value of the arts education. Mm. Uh, Terrence Regan is with me, an art teacher at Morley Elementary in West Hartford. Uh, so we're hearing about uh, the importance of art education, the importance of connecting uh, learning to other subjects, uh, helping children uh, learn to express their emotions. So how do you approach uh, parents who are, again, worried about their child, making sure that they're meeting standards and so that they understand that the creative process is, is part of that that learning. Yeah, I think it goes a little um, because standards are important and it's important for students to, you know, to meet a certain criteria when they're looking at math, when they're looking at science, when they're looking at any other subject besides a creative subject. But it is also um super important when you take something like the arts or like music or like language arts and you take a look at the once again those problem solving ideas and once again kind of putting students into a situation where they don't have this fixed mindset and how they can problem solve and how they can work around whatever problem they're trying to solve in let's say a math or a science and just like the second caller was saying the idea that over the course of human history, there's been all of these scientific discoveries and they've taken those scientific discoveries and somebody creative and somebody who is well-versed in problem solving has taken that idea and then expanded on it or changed it in some way and has sort of worked a little bit, uh, worked the problem out a little bit more. And so, you know, to not get too abstract about it, those students that, and those parents that are focused on, um, you know, kind of reaching these academic goals, it's important to see that this sort of idea of not being in a fixed mindset and this sort of idea of looking and reflecting on everything that the student is doing creatively extends not just to elementary school, not just to high school, but like your entire life, you'll be working to problem solve. And in whatever field you end up going into, you'll need that problem solving ability. You'll need that creative ability and you'll need to be able to use that effectively. And if you don't have that foundation or that scaffolding that we were talking about before, then it won't be able to be you know, built further. Mm. You can join our conversation about creativity, 888-720-9677. Uh, again, 888-720-9677. Uh, Tanya is calling from Milford. Tanya, you're on the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm really excited about this show. Um, I, I think my husband and I really try to be intentional. We have a six and 10 year old and feel that thinking about the arts or being creative while I grew up that way is a way of life. And we make an effort to be that house on the block where families come to and kids come to and they can really create. Um, and while we uh, support screens, we're really screen free about 80% of the time in our home. And our house is pretty messy and the kids room is messy and it gets cleaned up by the end of the day. But if a cup falls or a glass breaks, 
you know, we'll turn to our kids and say something like, what else could that be? You know, and safely take out the pieces that we can then turn into something else. Or we were getting rid of a bureau a couple of weeks ago. And my son said, I really think I could make something out of that in the yard. And so we found a place to put it in the yard. He's making a fort out of it. So really how we approach the everyday is a conversation my husband and I really talk about and try to be intentional about. Well, thank you, Tanya, uh, for your call. Uh, Jason is calling from Hartford. Jason, you're on the show. Hi, good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much. This is wonderful that you're doing this show about the arts today, and I wanted to just take a moment to mention uh, a program that's going on now for your listeners that I think will be perfect opportunity. I'm with Community Renewal Team here in Hartford, and we work annually with the National Arts Program uh, to sponsor an art show that is free for both professional and amateur artists, young and old. Children are welcome to enter. We hope the teachers that are there with you today that they'll share this program with their children. Uh, we're accepting submissions for the show up until uh, February the 7th, uh, and then the show will be available to the public at Capital Community College in downtown Hartford. There are cash prizes for people to win, but again, it's free to enter the show. It's an amazing opportunity for anyone who is at all creative in any way to express themselves and share the art that they produce with the public and to have that art seen by the public. It's really a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Well, thank you. And we're hoping that lots of people will enter. Thank you so much, Jason, for letting us know again about that that art show uh, uh, hosted by the Community Renewal Team. Uh, Before we run out of time, I wanted to go back to Pam Murphy, who's the Department Supervisor of Visual Arts at West Hartford Public Schools. Uh, You know, what can... um, parents do to support their kids? What do you tell parents? Well, I I love what um, one of the last two callers was talking about in terms of um, moving away from the screen, move away from technology, move. It's beautiful for some of the things that it does, but it can also isolate children. And we need to keep them curious, exploring, and using inquiry, um, doing that with groups of kids as as they're going to that caller's home. I love that. And not being afraid to make a mess and really creating habits of mind. Um, look at the sunset. Look out your window. Come run and see that the moon was mm-hmm. so full last night. What does that mean to you? And really um, involving um, their children with them on these you know, explorations of the sky or a museum or a walk through the woods, whatever that is. Um, to stay curious with your kids and get away from the screens. That would be the biggest thing. And then also I heard um, opportunity has been a big sort of theme, providing opportunity for exploration, providing opportunity to be together. And it doesn't have to be for hours and hours because sometimes we don't have that kind of time. But opportunity is very important to the creative process. Well, thank you so much, Pam Murphy and Terrence Regan, both from the West Hartford uh, Public Schools. Uh, as we hear about the importance of art education, fostering creativity, unfortunately, uh, in some districts, art education is sometimes the first to be cut, and that shouldn't happen. So we thank you for giving us some of your expertise here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, yeah. Uh, this is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, my guest, Dr. Talia Goldstein, will continue to stay with us, Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University. And we're going to hear more about community programming to help children and families uh, with creativity. And you can join us, too, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, with us by Zoom is Dr. Talia Goldstein as we explore creativity. She's an assistant professor of applied developmental psychology at George Mason University. Now, beyond art education in the classroom, there's community programming to help foster creativity among children and their families. We're going to hear about a really great uh, community uh, program here in Hartford. Before I do that, though, uh, Barbara is calling in from Rocky Hill. Barbara, you're on the show. Yes, thanks for clicking my call. I just remember my own grandmother taking me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art as a child, and so when I have the opportunity, I've taken my grandchildren to the, the to the Athenaeum, and actually they had some paper and pencils, and I took him, and he grabbed it, and we went all around the museum and started drawing pictures. Uh, he had a great time, and he goes back with me every so often. Mm-hmm. And he takes his own notebook now, so he has his own notebook when he goes to the museum. Well, that sounds like a great uh, family tradition uh, to keep going. I'm so glad you t- are talking about museums, because in studio with me now is Mariselli Gonzalez, the Youth and Community Programs Manager at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Uh, Mariselli, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me today. Uh, so uh, coincidentally, on Saturday, it's actually considered second Saturdays at the Wadsworth. So what does that mean exactly? And how are you engaging the community to come into the Wadsworth with their children? Mm-hmm. So second Saturday takes place every second Saturday of the month. And from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., we offer free admission to the museum. And guests are greeted um, with the goal of intergenerational connections. And so that's achieved through family-friendly programming such as hands-on art making, uh, docent-led tours, and live performances. So really what we try to do is give um, the freedom of choice. You know, whether it's in kind of intimate one-on-one moment between a parent and child and the art making activity to a more group setting with a docent-led tour, we have our docents who are interested in hearing what the children have to say. So they're bending over and they're listening to a child see what um, they interpret the art uh, as being. And so it's fun to walk through the gallery spaces and seeing docents kind of mm-hmm. curved and bend over and you wait a moment and they're asking what line is taking shape. Mm-hmm. And then you see um, the children mimicking and then actually kind of taking the lead Mm. on those tours. So, Maricel, you mentioned uh, intergenerational uh, learning. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is that important? Because we heard from Barbara just a few seconds ago talking about her grandmother used to take Mm -hmm. her to the art museum. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious if you could talk more about uh, Mm -hmm. that need, uh, especially um, in Hartford. Yeah, absolutely. So that um, intergenerational learning opportunity is an opportunity, again, to create that um, safe environment. It's to make art more which is our goals and how we program um, these major themes and concepts and making them less intimidating for um, encouraging uh, those mini C's and little C's of just about exploring and and making mistakes and trying to uh, set examples in our own little kind of art demos um, to just pointing to the wall and explaining how an artist, again, was exploring a new material and meeting challenges. And um, it led to a wonderful creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that point, making art approachable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deborah's calling from West Hartford. Deborah, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling to say that um, I believe that art is just essential for humans being. And I have witnessed with my own son, who was a traumatized child that we adopted, that the actual art-making process is what heals him. It is what helps him 
regulate emotionally, and everything else is possible for him because of his art making. And he was a student at Morley Elementary where they do a wonderful job of integrating the arts into their curriculum, into their everyday life, and that's why he was able to function there. So I just, I really feel very strongly that art needs to be integrated in every educational process. It's not optional. It's essential. Well, thank you, Deborah, for those important points. Uh, Dr. Talia Goldstein, I'm sure you were able to hear our caller talking about how creativity can help with trauma. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that working uh, in an artistic form where, again, it's just there's no problem. There's no right answer. There's no sort of strict problem to solve, but it really is an open-ended, express yourself, um, affirming process. There's there's strong evidence from the, the therapeutic literature to suggest that for all sorts of different populations, children and adults, um, art making can help make sense of what happened to you, can help make sense of your emotional responses, and can be a safe space in which you can express express, you can process, and then importantly, when it's over, you can make a choice whether to put that artwork away and sort of leave it to the side for a while, or you can make a choice to keep reflecting on it and thinking about it. But it's this idea of sort of putting brackets around an emotion or putting brackets around an experience so that you can gain a little bit of separation, a little bit of third-person perspective after the fact, and that can really help with healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maricela Gonzalez at the Wadsworth, you know, have you seen uh, specific children and families uh, that are having these moments, like talking about things that might have happened to them and how they can express themselves through art? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... <clears throat> It's wonderful um, to see how these kind of different channels of expressing themselves in art can come into play uh, with programming that takes on some difficult subject matters. Um, For instance, in October, we had an Afro-Cosmology's American Reflections featured artist Marin Hassager come into play. And that show deals with very tough subject matters, um, whether it it discusses the um, creative manner that artists have to display themselves through something um, like institution of slavery. And so how these different audiences come to relate and um, find connection with an artist whose work is about communal aspects. It's about sharing stories. And so we had families, uh, grandparents and grandchildren sit next to each other and participate in our activity, which was um, the twisting of newspapers. Mm -hmm to create a giant kind of um, museum sculpture. And so uh, with that one-on-one interactions and then again speaking to a living artist and hearing about their lives and why they create artwork um, could be cathartic. Mm -hmm. And then going upstairs to the exhibition space and having Marion Hassinger's living artists um, talk to them one-on-one and ask them how they want Mm -hmm. to express themselves in this artwork and what's it um, play off of their peers in that Mm -hmm. sense, other children there in that space. Well, it sounds like it's great to have uh, Second Saturdays at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. We're going to have more information
information at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Maricela Gonzalez, thank you for coming on and telling thank us a little you. bit about the special programming and why it matters. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, with us also via Zoom was Dr. Talia Goldstein uh, at George Mason University. Uh, uh, Talia, we have uh, just a, a couple of minutes left. You know, as uh, we end the show, what are some things that parents, educators uh, should be thinking about as they engage with their children each day? I think that, you know, one of the big ways to think about the arts and one of the big ways to think about arts education is it's about giving children as many tools as they can to be successful. So theater, dance, visual arts, um, writing, all of these are different tools that children can use to express themselves, to understand their world, to solve problems, to explore, and having as many different experiences, going to museums, going to the theater, uh, you know, working on a project in the backyard. All of these things are tools that children can use, reflect on, explore, and take forward uh, as they develop and, and as they become their own independent adults. Mm. Dr. Talia Goldstein, thanks again for joining us here on Where We Live. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Julia Pastel. Uh, thanks to Carmen Baskoff on the phones. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. You can learn more about the show. Download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>